Blog Talk Radio. This is Port of Harlem Talk Radio, and I'm your host for this show and also publisher of Port of Harlem Magazine at portofharlem.net. If you're listening via the Internet, you can type your questions in the comment box. You can also call and listen by dialing on your phone, 516-531-9540. And if you want to ask a question after you are connected, press 1, and please be in a quiet place. You can also visit portofharlem.net and click Port of Harlem Talk Radio from the menu to hear this and past episodes. We're also available on about seven different podcast platforms. And lastly, We Talk Productions sponsors Port of Harlem Talk Radio. Our guest today is Gershon Williams, Sr. Uh, he's a retired adjunct professor of African-American history and African-American studies at Mesa Community College in Mesa, Arizona, one of those fast-growing states. Uh, Rutledge Press <laughs> released <laughs> Rutledge uh, Press released his essay, uh, Antonio Furman: Pan-Africanism and the Struggle for Race Vindication in May 2021. And that's what we're going to talk about today is Joseph uh, Furman, who in 1850, this Haitian challenge and meticulously dismantled the dangerous pillars of the race myth and race propaganda. Again, in circa 1850, an international school of racial uh, topology favoring the superiority of Caucasians over all people of color had begun to develop. We're going to talk about that too and publicly express itself. This international school Propaganda, the pseudoscience of biological and intellectual inferiority of African-descended people, and it has been referred to as scientific racism. So Gershon Williams, as I said, is going to explain this environment that took place around 1850, and I will say it exists to some degree now. We'll talk about that. The players and Furman's response. Incidentally, like myself, Williams is a graduate of Gary Westside Senior High School, and also traces some of his earliest African-centered thought to Herman Langford, who was our Westside High School teacher at different times. And actually, we just met recently over the Internet, so we didn't even know each other back in Great Gary or at Westside High School. But welcome, Gershom. How are you doing today? I am doing quite well, my brother. Uh, thank you so much for your wonderful and gracious invitation to join you on Port of Harlem Radio. I'm excited uh, delighted and just thrilled to be a host, to be a guest on the show. So uh, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you so much uh, to my Gary Westside High School alumnus. Exactly. Always proud to be a cougar. <laughs> anyway, let's start off with the environment that Joseph Furman worked in. In particular, what European? Oh. Go ahead. And I, what, I just want to say that. Before we delve into the mid-19th century, uh, very uh, racial, it was race, racial hierarchy, uh, the idea that uh, the European, the Western European Caucasian was uh, biologically and intellectually superior to uh, certainly African people, Native Americans, the indigenous people here, in the Western Hemisphere, and, and even women, uh, white women uh, didn't even get the right to vote. So they took a back seat until about 1920. But let me preface our discussion with 
regarding scientific racism because a couple of centuries before the advent of pseudoscientific racism in the mid-1850s or so, uh, you had this whole mythology, this curse of Ham that derives from the book of Genesis in the Old Testament, and they took that uh, evangelists and, uh, you know, ministers and preachers would, uh, you know, they, they took that, uh, I think it's maybe, oh, man, three or four uh, verses in, in Genesis, and I forget exactly what number, but uh, that where Noah, after the great deluge, the flood, uh, his, one of his sons, he had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and supposedly Ham witnessed his, his father's nakedness, and his father woke from his dream. He was drunk from wine, and he, he put a curse on his own grandson. I uh, really was Canaan, Canaan, his grandson, and Ham. And, uh, and, so, and so people who were pro-slavery, who, uh, you know, believed and subscribed to the ideology of the enslavement of African people, they used that as a justification and a rationalization until the pseudoscience comes along uh, in the mid-1850 or so. Um, and Frederick Douglass gave a commencement speech at Western Reserve College, I think it was 1852 or so, right around there. And he challenged, uh, he, in the speech, he gave a brilliant, a brilliant and profound uh, challenge and counter-argument to this uh, intellectual madness. And then, of course, Du Bois comes along in the early 20th century, Carter G. Woodson, uh, but Antonio Furman was living in Haiti and speaking French. And so we weren't privileged to the scholarship because we're an English-speaking nation, and Haiti is basically a French-speaking nation, but right across the other side of the mountain, you have the, the Dominican Republic, and there are Spanish-speaking nations. So wherever we were, you know, colonized, wherever the enslaver, the colonizer dropped us off in the Caribbean or wherever we ended up in residence, we spoke that language. So Furman was obscured and little known to us. He was an unsung scholar, Pan-Africanist, Egyptologist, anthropologist. We call him an Africologist. But he was unknown to us up until 20 years ago when his work was miraculously discovered in the Smithsonian Library, one copy in French was discovered, then translated. The hardback edition was issued in 2000, and the paperback edition was released in 2002, and that's when I discovered Furman. Well, I did, actually, I didn't discover him until 2012. So a decade after the paperback is released by, I think it's University of Illinois Press, um, I discovered Antonio Furman, and the rest is history because we want him to become a household name, a household where we want students and non-students around the world to know who this, he was a pioneer, um, a seminal scholar in Pan-African studies. And uh, I don't want to get on a roll and say everything I want to say because I want to let you answer, ask your questions, but well, I'll stop but with that for right now. Okay, I'm going to go back to my question, but I do want to say that was just a great opening because I'm just listening with my ears, uh, you know, really perked 
because I didn't think that um, to um, that that the stories of Ham, which I've heard as well as you have, played a role in these people around 1850. Because again, the story that started in 1850, I'd heard of earlier, but I didn't know the details of until you spoke of them a couple of weeks ago when you wrote the story for us. But my question was, um, this environment in which uh, Furman lived in in the 1850s. Uh, these these were these were pseudo scientists of European descent, what? Europeans, and they were believing that African people were inferior to whites. So, what did these scientists yes. proclaim? Who were these scientists, and what did they proclaim? Well, 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 in the United States, in the 1850s, let me just say that um, a French, a highly respected and very influential French. Um, scholar, his name was Arthur de Gobineau, and he wrote a book titled The Inequality of the Human Races in four volumes between 1853, I think, and 1856. He wasn't alone, but he was a pioneer in that sense, and what happened, his work was translated uh, by some, some of the southern intellectuals who were uh, these propagandists uh, propagizing the idea of white supremacy and black inferiority, like Josiah Clark Knott, um, and I'm trying to think of what his, his, uh, his contemporary was, but they actually used Arthur de Gobineau's Inequality of the Human Races. They tra- it was translated in the antebellum South right around 1856, 1857, and that time period is critical because that's when the United States Supreme Court is looking at the Dred Scott decision, the Dred, the Dred uh, Scott versus Sanford Supreme Court decision in 1857. So the climate around in the antebellum South and across the United States is, of course, one of uh, what we call uh, hegemony and domination and oppression uh, but these people were seeking to have justification or scholarship it, it, to, to have it validated that the that people of African descent were primitive, were backwards, uncivilized, savage, whatever polite word you want to use. We can use that other N-word as well. But <laughs> any derogatory, pejorative term they could use to define us they stereotyped and stigmatized our people, our ancestors, and it continues to this day. So this okay, is the so climate that we're dealing okay, with. Okay, so Garisham, let's get something to the particulars. Okay, I think the guy from, from the article you wrote for Port of Harlem, I think the guy was George Robbins Glitton, you speaking of. Yeah, those, there's a few that I can't remember all the names, but, but you've got... But let's, take, uh, but let's just take one guy and say in particular... What scientific evidence did he claim he had that black people were inferior? Well, 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 let me and let me let me just for a real clear example of what you and I are talking about for your listeners. Anyone who viewed the movie Django Unchained saw a supreme example of what they call the science of phrenology. Phrenology was mentioned in the movie, in Quentin Tarantino's movie. And what is that science? That science is it, 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 it's, it's supposed to be a study of the cranial, the brain, the skull, measurements of cranial capacity and intelligence. Okay. And um, 
there, there was a, there was another scholar whose name I should have probably wrote his name down. He wrote two books, Crania Americana and Crania Egyptomania, uh, around the same time in the 1850s. And I think I mentioned him in that litany of names that I mentioned was in my, it, in my was essay. It, was, it, was it Samuel Morton? Yes, it was. Yes, it was. Okay, Thank now, you, now, brother. Okay, Thank you so okay, much. Now, 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 tell me specifically, what did they, what, what evidence did he present? What did he present? Okay, let me just say, he collected uh, hundreds of skulls. Okay. He collected, uh, and I don't know the exact number, but he had collected, he, I think he was affiliated with Harvard University, and he had another a colleague that he borrowed some of these skulls from. There's a science called craniometry and craniology that's also a sister science to phrenology. All of these are precursors to anthropology. And what do they do with these skulls? They the measure the skulls. They take the, they measure them. They don't just measure the skulls, but in this particular case, they're measuring skulls. Later on, they got into measuring anatomy and physiology. They measured arm length. This is how anthropologists can determine a race, what race or ethnicity a person is derived from. There are certain, each so-called ethnic group or cultural group has kind of specific jaw structures. Um, you know, as we know, the African, the anatomical, and uh, what is the other word I wanted to use, um, the, the, the Africans are distinguished and different from Europeans. So they're measuring the skulls. There's a wonderful book called The Mismeasure of Man, where Harvard biologist uh, Stephen Jay Gould went back and he okay, actually corrected and, a lot and, of. And, and let me, before we get another, before we mention another name, another book. So when they looked at the, when they looked at the skulls, <laughs> did they say the skulls were bigger, smaller? They they were saying in in uh, in uh, George Glidden I think is he was trying to prove the Egyptians were white people. By their skulls. He was trying to prove his bottom line was to prove the Egyptians were Caucasians. Because their skulls were more. That the like, great civilizations day, now. Been, why was huh? it because skull, Why was it because their skulls were more like modern day white people or what? Uh, he distorted his findings to reach. You know he wanted. He was looking for certain conclusions, and so uh, he distort, really distorted the findings of the skulls because at that time, uh, the pro-slavery argument, another way they wanted to rationalize it was because you got we have to remember the uh, but, Napoleon. But again, let, me, let, me, let me stop for a second, though. But what was it about these skulls that made the black skulls different? to prove that white people were superior. What was it about no, these skulls? All of the, the, I'm going to say the majority of the skulls, if not all of them, uh, that were examined were determined to be Caucasoid or Caucasians. Okay. And uh, some kind of way this guy, he made this connection that the Egyptians, he got some skulls from Egypt. Egypt he, they were able to, uh, this was Harvard University, I think, that he was working through. Okay, okay, okay. And they had they a close, they had their collection. But, so the whole the whole aim and objective was to uh, uh, I want to say create this evidence to prove the Egyptians were non-Africans that they were Caucasians. And so at that time, the science of Egyptology, if we want to call it that, was coming into prominence. And anything that they could use, archaeological, anthropolog anthropological evidence. 
uh, to support this thesis that the Egyptians were not African people. And so that was the underlying motive for a lot of these um, pseudoscientific experiments and, and so also to prove that Africans. So therefore, if the Egyptians weren't black, then that means that they that the descendants of the Egyptians were white and the whites are superior because they're related to Egyptians, I suspect. Yeah, well, the main thing is they wanted to claim, Europe wanted to, has been wanting to claim Egypt. When they discovered uh, the Rosetta Stone in 1822, it was trans, I'm sorry, it was, it was deciphered in 1822 by Jean-Francois a French linguist, and they were able to read the language and determine how magnificent, how uh, brilliant the Egyptian civilization was. It was it was it was grander than anything that was ever produced in Europe by Greece or Rome or Greco Roman civilization and they wanted to claim it for themselves. So this is how they go about doing that at an academic level. You know, they have these influential intellect that's just a part of it. But a big part of the pro slavery argument, these people were propagandizing this idea that uh and Du Bois really spoke uh I mean eloquently to this and very powerfully to this argument. Uh, he wrote his book, The World in Africa. He has a whole chapter on this. And he just talks about that the cotton kingdom, at the height of the cotton kingdom, and uh, antebellum slavery in the South was when this idea emerged that they tied it, our enslavement in to our inferiority <laughs> and, and um our intellectual inferiority, and that the Egyptians could not have been black. That whole, but every, a lot of it centered around the enslavement of our people. And there's a connection okay, between so Egypt I, and slavery. Yeah, Egypt and slavery. So what I hear you saying is that they tended to put a lot of value on Egypt, and they wanted to bunk yes. that the Egyptians were Africans, and because they weren't Africans right. and they were white, <laughs> that white people were born period, because they were related to the Egyptians, and blacks are not. Well, let me say it this way. If the Egyptians were African or black, then that dispels and destroys the whole myth of Ham. The whole mythology of the curse of Ham cannot hold its water if the Egyptians were African, because the whole idea, again, the argument was Africans had never been, they had never created on their own independence. They had never created any great civilization on the continent. And Egypt was taken out of Africa. They knew it was a great civilization. Actually, Nubia, Ethiopia was even greater than Egypt. But uh, these Europeans could not allow, if, you, if, you, if we think about it, they're saying that we're cursed and we're inferior, racially inferior, intellectually inferior. But if we created Egyptian civilization, then that debunks the whole, that, you know, that debunks the whole argument. And the mythology, right? So they had to uh, really try to claim the, this this fact that Egypt was not an African civilization. Okay, that it was so either part of the Orient. Yes. Oh, so yeah. Antonov Furman in his book, The Equality of Human Races, has several chapters that address this. Because okay, every so me, one of our but, every but, one but, of but, our historians is they have to before they before they can actually deal with the history. They have to deal with the stereotypes and the mythology of our, of African history, what we call the pre-colonial story. Uh, Joseph Harris has a book called Africans in Their History. The whole first chapter is talking about a tradition of myths and stereotypes before he even deals with African history, the facts. 
And the, okay, he so, has to so, let me put, do battle. Let me, let me, before we get too far into that subject, but let's talk about one other guy you mentioned in the article, Charles Hamilton Smith, no, Robert Knox, who uh, was from Britain, but he also had a hatred toward yeah. the Irish, Irish Celts. So, uh, so it seemed like the hatred wasn't always just limited to black people. Well, yeah, there has been documentation. There has been, yeah. Well, the the whole idea of the um, the uh, even Hitler kind of deal with some of this. I mean, the Irish were supposedly some of the outcasts in Europe. There was some prejudice, some racial prejudice, and a disdain for the. If you didn't have the, there was a line of Europeans. I almost want to say Aryan. But that was a term that was popular. Um, the uh, uh, how the the British, the the English, German uh, ethnic group, and I say the English, the British, the Britons, they were the considered superior to all the European groups. Okay, so that you, the, you can trace that back. British, you said the British, the British, the British, right. or the English. Yeah, right. they were, and I think there's another there's a, there's another uh, a European strain that they tie into, and they figured they were superior to all the groups in Europe. So the Irish, you know, which I don't want to really talk a whole lot about with the short amount of time we have, but the Irish were, uh, I've read, where they were even uh, somewhat enslaved and oppressed, uh, not to the extent, I don't think they were dehumanized and considered property, but certainly throughout history and throughout civilization, you have the powerful and the powerless. And you have uh, these, and sometimes Africans had civil wars as well. You have okay. people who have feuds, you know, and things like that. So that's, that's a part of history. Okay, so but the big thing is that this guy who was also uh, touting white supremacy also had issues with other people who we now consider white. But what was Furman's response to... Uh, the evidence that these people supposedly had that black people were inferior. What was his response? Well, that's that's the whole reason. The whole reason behind him, his whole motivation in writing the equality of the human races. Okay, that's, many people believe. Again, this is the primary counter argument uh, to Arthur de Gobineau's uh, treaties in the mid 1850s because okay, Arthur de Gobineau used the term. And, 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 he wrote, and he wrote this in yeah. 1885. Right. It's 30 years after the Gobineau publishes the inequality of the human races. And Furman is not only addressing the Gobineau, he's addressing all the pseudoscientists who were popular at that time, but the Gobineau was probably center stage. He might've been the primary target. Furman dismantles all of that madness, all of that, all those shenanigans, he takes it, like I said, he, 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 step by step, his chapters, he, as a matter of fact, he uses Haiti. He uses Haitian history, Haitian uh, intellectuals, poets, novelists, writers, artists, as supreme examples of their, their non-inferiority. Um, okay. And he writes chapters that deal with Egyptians being African, Ethiopians being African. I mean, man, people, people need to go back. This man, 100 years ago, over 100 years ago, uh, wrote some of the best African history that's been written in the last two or three centuries. I mean, he was brilliant. Okay. 600 let me pages. Let me, let me repeat the yes, book's name. Please. It's called The Equality of the Human Race. It was 
done in 1885. Did he have other publications? And, yeah. Did he have other publications? Yeah. Well, and the did, subtitle. And did, and, did, and, did, and, did, and did he do public speeches? Well, I don't know. But the, the subtitle of the book, I think, is called Positive Anthropology. Mm-hmm. It's it, a subtitle of the book, Positive Anthropology. He did have another couple of publications where he addressed, uh, I believe, the history and cultural heritage of Haiti. I remember I've, I've seen it available, um, I think, through Amazon. I don't think I have that. I don't believe I purchased it. But ha- Furman was a politician as well. Uh, he ran for office in Haiti. There was some uh, really some bitter political kinds of uh, opposition, oppositional forces there. He actually was exiled from Haiti. He, see, we have, to, we have to say that he was in Paris, France. I need to tell this story right quick. He was in Paris. He was exiled. He was invited by the Paris Anthropological Society to join this prestigious group of white men. You know, this was the elite prestige group in Europe. We invited him. There was another Haitian brother that was a part of the organization. And, and Antonov Furman states that he used to sit in these meetings and observe and listen to these, to these Europeans de, you know, declaring the inferiority of African people. They were diminishing our humanity, and that's why we need this whole vindicationist movement to vindicate our humanity. But Furman said, I'm not going to speak out and say anything. Is me. It, would be, it would be nonproductive or counterproductive. I'm going to write a book. He spent the next 18 months to 24 months writing the equality of the human races in 1885 while he was in Paris. And that's why, you know, again, he was in Paris. And, you know, but the thing is, W.E.B. Du Bois met but do you know of his? Did he? Did, uh, he was in Paris. I think he was a diplomat at one point. But did he? Did there? Do you know if there's any other writings or any other evidence of his thinking? Uh, not not to the not to the the profundity. What he did with equality, he never. He's only done that. That was a one-time project. I mean, you're talking about six hundred and twenty-something pages, and yeah, he pulled was, his yeah, heart and soul. Well, there's probably I'm wondering. There's probably other things that people probably just haven't. Found them or no, them. no, no. I t- I just mentioned that there was one other publication where he actually documented some historical information about Haiti, maybe some of the pol- political struggles and that kind of thing. Nothing that he wrote uh, matches the magnitude and the comprehension of the equality of the human races. That was his a signature uh, textbook, and it is a classic, and you can get it in hardback or paperback. Uh, even his colleagues, uh, I think there was one other Haitian brother that wrote a piece. I don't know if it, how how if it was book if it became a book, uh, but he also was addressing this whole idea of inferiority versus superiority of well, you know, uh, European. Well, considering considering that the Anglo world, which we are in, just found his works of recent, and with him being the diplomat and the politician, I wouldn't be surprised if there's something else about him. And at some point, someone's going to spend money on finding it and publishing it. And I hope that takes take that place. Take place well, with all know. the things that I've read in the last six six years, nothing has surfaced. Uh, yeah, I, I just did, mentioned it. The reason I mentioned that, too, because recently we just uh, uh, interviewed a guy who's a Francophone writer. And I thought it was so amazing how much I don't know and how much we don't know in general about the African Franco, about the Franco-African world. Because you yeah, know, the French-speaking world, it just wasn't our world. 
It was not something we just taught. Yeah. Now, <laughs> interestingly <laughs> enough, a a colleague of Sheikh Anthony Diop, Sheikh Anthony Diop, who is probably the from the Senegalese multidisciplinary scholar who passed away in February of 1986, they call him the Pharaoh of African Studies. But his colleague and student, Dr. Theophila Binger, had written a piece on Furman. Uh, he founded a magazine called Anc in France, and we have his essay. We trans we got permission to translate and republish that piece on National Furman that he had wrote, he had written because again it was in French. So. Some of the things that maybe uh, divide us and 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 we're, we're fragmented on a on an intellectual level sometimes is the language. The language is a barrier. Matter of fact, one of the scholars was saying is firm and obscure because he was a Haitian, or is he obscured us because he spoke French and we speak English? Well, I think uh, both of those are correct. <laughs> you know, we well, just we, have, we just don't speak French. Well, we have about sixty seconds left. Yeah, so we have about 60 seconds left, left, and that's why I'm saying that's why I hope that uh, as time progresses that I, I think of, I can't think of the writer's name off the top of my head, but I know I think he's of West African descent, but he does a lot of work in the in the, in the uh, Franco-African world. Maybe someone like him would probably find it because he did an excellent story on um, the black Frenchman that was on the Titanic. Well, yeah, but I'm telling you, brother, we don't really need anything else to tell you the truth. That the magnum opus that Furman has left us, uh, this equality of the human races, is really a masterful. It's a masterpiece, and that but I would love to know. Yeah, it, it, about, it, about and so right now, we, once we can, you know, absorb that and digest it and marinate on that thing and get it in these colleges and universities uh, where students. We didn't tell the story how Furman was rediscovered in the classroom by a Haitian student talking to one of his his professors at at, at a college, Rhode Island College. She was teaching a class on the anthropology of race and racism, and she was dealing with Huh? Oh, yeah, go, 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 we're about to end this. She was, she and, we, and, we, and we had one call. Let me this before we hang up, before we take this call in. If the caller wants to talk, ask a question, press 1, and then we need to end the program. So if the caller wants to ask a question, press one on your phone. Okay. Me? Uh, they don't want to no it's the, no the caller. Other person one other person called in. That's fine. But we have to end the program. We're at the end of about thirty seconds. But uh I want to thank you for taking the time to uh uh announce this guy or to tell us more about this guy. The article is at quarterholum.net. You're welcome to read the article and to get the book. And, yes, uh, Gershon, thanks for introducing me to this guy. And, yes, thanks. I do want to get this book and make sure we get this book in the library in the Gambia. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me, brother. It was my pleasure. Uh, and we say Ashe and Harambe. And thank you. Be Stay well. Stay safe out there in this crazy COVID world. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right. So thanks a lot. Right. And, again, it's portofharlem.net. Thanks so much. Take care. All right. Have a good evening. Bye-bye. All right.